know, the worship this morning just leads us right into this passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're um, going to be diving into this morning. And you know, when I, when I looked, at, I need to make a confession, when I, when I looked at this passage um, a couple weeks ago, I thought, you know, Kelsey could do the first half of three, we could slide past this, maybe touch on it a little bit and, and move on to chapter 4, where it says, therefore. But then I saw the therefore, and I was like, well, I have to go back and understand what that's there for. And I looked at chapter, verses 18 to 22, and I'm like, boy, I really don't want to talk about that. Um, th- this makes me really uncomfortable, and, and so I kept looking for ways to, to, to justify not preaching this passage. And then I was reminded by my lovely wife that, Dwayne, you always tell people the reason that expository preaching is, is so good is it forces preachers to preach passages that they don't like to preach. And I just want to tell you this morning, this is a passage that I, I didn't want to preach because this is hard. But we have to remember as we look at this passage, as we look at all of 1 Peter, that Peter is writing a letter of encouragement to support suffering believers to be strong in their faith. And as I immersed myself in these scriptures, I began to realize how, how beautiful they really were. And to the suffering believer that Peter was writing to, it had to be encouraging. This passage is really all about Jesus. And it begins with suffering and it ends with triumph. And we have to be careful that we don't miss the major point of Christ's victory over suffering in this passage by dwelling on Noah's flood and the, uh, Jesus preaching to the spirits. And we can get caught up in those things and forget that the major thrust of this passage is Christ's victory over suffering. And Peter presents to us four elements of Christ's triumphant victory. And remember, he's writing to a, to a church that is facing brutal persecution, and he's encouraging them. And so he begins with Christ's death. He talks about how Christ preached to the spirits, how he rose from the dead, and how he now sits at the right hand of the Father, a progression from suffering to victory. So beginning with me in verse 18, Peter says, and Kelsey talked about this a little bit last week, but he says, for Christ died for the sins, died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this, was, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. God, this morning as we um, dive into this passage, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose the beauty of this passage and that it would powerfully impact and change us as we look at it. Father, may we celebrate your victory. Help us to understand it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Peter begins by reminding those that were suffering that that Christ died. Christ died for the sins once and for all. And so he reminds of, of five things that Christ, of, about Christ's death. First of all, he reminds us that, that it was a horrible death. It said, for Christ died. Some of your um, translation may say Christ suffered, but the word there gives the idea of, a, of an awful type of suffering, that Jesus experienced an awful suffering. And I think sometimes, no, I do, we always, we underestimate the brutality of the crucifixion. I remember many years ago when, when the Passion of Christ came out, many people were appalled by, by the graphic um, portrayal of Christ's suffering, and yet probably what we saw in, in the Passion was nothing compared to what Christ actually experienced. So Peter says, look, church, that suffering, remember, Christ suffered brutally for you. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ was crucified that his appearance would be disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. And so Peter says, brothers and sisters, Christ understands. He was brutally um, tortured. Then second of all, he says that, that it was a sacrificial death. Christ died for sins. For sins. Notice, he doesn't say for his sins, but Christ died for sins, for our sins, because Christ himself never sinned. Jesus was sinless, and yet he died for us. It was a sacrificial death. And Peter reminds us that not only was it, was it brutal and sacrificial, but it was unrepeatable. Christ would never have to die again. He died once and for all. His death was sufficient for all time and therefore could never be repeated by anyone else. You see, the blood of the bulls and the goats could never do what Christ did. You know, they say that during Jewish Passover, there would be approximately 250,000 sheep that would be killed, and, and so many sheep were killed that, that rivers of blood would flow down off of, the, off of Jerusalem. But those, those 250,000 sheep and all of that blood could never do what Christ did. He accomplished the ultimate sacrifice when he died on the cross for us. It was a substitutionary death. It says the righteous for the unrighteous. He took our place. He paid the price that we ought to have paid. 
That's what Jesus did. He took the penalty for our sins. And he continues on. And we have to remember the beauty of the cross. The brutality of it and yet what it accomplished for us. You know, 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever stopped or when was the last time you stopped and thought about what Christ has done for you? where you had enough time to to meditate on the beauty of what he has done for you. And Peter says, lastly, the fifth thing is it was a reconciling death. He says that he might bring us to God. You see, if Christ had not died on the cross for us, we would have remained enemies of God. Because remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, man was separated from God, and it required Christ's death to bring us back. You see, when when Christ died, if you remember that the veil in the temple, the curtain was, was, was ripped from top to bottom so that the Holy of Holies was exposed, helping us to understand that we now have direct access to a holy God. That before Christ's death on the cross, we did not have. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, justified means just as if you had never sinned, through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When was the last time you thought about the beauty of your ability to access God directly because of what Christ did? And Peter's reminding his audience, look, you're suffering tremendously, I understand, but Christ is your example. Look to him as your example. So Peter begins by reminding them of the death of Christ on the cross. And then he goes on and it says, He went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Now, what in the world is that all about? What does that mean? Who are these spirits and and when and where and how did Jesus preach to them? And now when you do research and and you look, no no commentary that I read, nobody agrees exactly on what this means. And so as you look at it, you have to go to verse 20 to find out who he, where he went. And it says that those who disobeyed, the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So we know that from the book of Genesis in chapter 6, that in the days before the flood, that evil had completely overtaken the world. And God sent the flood in response to the rampant, uncontrolled wickedness of that day. 
And men not had not only rejected God, but did so defiantly and violently. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says that when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, these that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So there are several explanations for this verse, but, but the oldest interpretation suggests that the phrase sons of God refers to the angels who had rebelled against God at the fall. We call them demons, and these demons inhabited human bodies, married human women, and gave birth to Nephilim, which is in, chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 6. And this is how Jewish scholars who translated the Old Testament into Greek understood this text what they, they, to, to mean. And so for this hideous sin, the angels, when, the, when, when, when God brought the flood onto the earth to destroy mankind at that time, he also um, sent these demons, um, the, these spirits, into, the, into a deep darkness, into a pit, and there's where they were to stay. And so, so what, what, what many people believe is that it was those spirits during the time of Noah that Jesus went and preached to when he was in the grave. Now, this, this word preached means to make a public announcement. So, so Jesus didn't go... He didn't go to, 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 um, to preach salvation so that, so that people could be saved. And, and there are people that take this passage to me that Jesus went and preached to, to, um, to those who had died. But he specifically says spirit. So he went and he proclaimed his victory over death to the spirits that had defied, that had rebelled against God. He proclaimed victory to them over their rebellion. So there you have it. That's my view of it. And there are many other views of that passage. But what we have to be careful of that we don't get so hung up on, on what that one passage meant that we lose the beauty of what Peter is trying to communicate with his readers. As Peter then goes on and, and begins to talk about Christ's resurrection from the dead. And, and Peter uses the story of Noah and the ark to explain this great salvation that Christ brings to the world. And he points out that God waited patiently for 120 years while Noah built the ark. And while he was building the ark, he preached continually to his contemporaries, warning them to escape the coming judgment that, that God had showed Noah that was coming. And everyone ignored Noah except his own family. And so when the flood came and covered the whole earth, it says only eight people got into the ark. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their daughters. Because everyone else was too busy. Everyone else was doing their own thing. 
And while Noah patiently built the ark, warned men of a coming judgment, they laughed at him and said, it's never going to happen. They were skeptical and unbelieving, and there was no cause for concern, much like in our day. We live in the age of skepticism and unbelief and casual unconcern. But when Noah entered the ark and it began to rain, I'm sure there were regrets and second thoughts by those that had heard the message that that Noah had been preaching to them. And now all of a sudden they saw this judgment begin to come and people knocking on his door saying, no, we're sorry, please let us in. And by that time, it was too late. And Peter explains to us the story uses that as an illustration of salvation. First of all, this water that, that came was God's judgment on mankind. And the ark represents God's salvation. Noah and his family were saved by the ark from the judgment of the water that came down. And then, Noah, uh, then Peter says that that in it only a few people innate all were saved through water. They were saved through water. Now, if they had been in the water and not in the ark, the water that saved them would have destroyed them, but the water wiped out the old world, delivered them into a new world. And Peter says that that symbolizes baptism. Now, now, what does Peter mean? Well, Peter saw the flood as a picture or a type of the baptism experience. See, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in Peter's day, just like it is today, baptism was a serious matter. Actually, baptism is what identified them with Christ. And so when someone was baptized or is baptized today, it meant a clean break from the past. It could include separation from your family, the loss of a job, the loss of friends. And when somebody was baptized, candidates were were interrogated very carefully. You see, their, their step, their submission in baptism was, was their, the next step in their faith. It wasn't simply so they could join the church or because their friends were being baptized or because it was time to be baptized When they were baptized, they were saying, I give my life to following Christ, my salvation. I am willing to give all of myself. I'm willing to to, to give up my friends. I'm willing to give up my job. I'm willing to give my life for Christ. 
I'm identifying myself with him. It was identifying them as a follower of Christ. And, and I, think, I think Peter was reminding them of the time maybe when they were baptized, of, of the commitment that they made and, and of the fact that, that they have been saved from this judgment through Christ. Now, baptism by itself doesn't save us. But baptism is a very important part of our spiritual journey. It's pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's that moment when we cross the line and make a public stand for Christ. It's that time when we say, I am done with the old way of life and I am now living a new life for Christ. I'm giving myself to him. And in many countries in the world, when a Christian converts, they're not persecuted until they're baptized because that is them identifying with Christ and the church. And baptism can and does cause people to die. It means that you've decided to leave the old world behind Get into this ark of salvation and follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, baptism is an incredibly sacred and beautiful thing. And sometimes I don't think we take it seriously enough. We're a little flippant about what it is. I believe it is incredibly important. And if you've not been baptized and you're a follower of Christ, you have to ask the question, why not? What's keeping me from identifying my allegiance with Christ? Making a public statement to the world saying, I am a follower. Don't take baptism lightly. But Peter adds, he said, look, the baptism, the water isn't what saves you. He's quick to say in verse 21, it's by the resurrection of Christ that we are saved. It saves us in verse 21 by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this morning as we sang songs here, we weren't worshiping a dead Savior, we were worshiping a risen king. We serve a God that is alive. And baptism points us to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so when one when somebody stands here in this pool with us, when they're baptized, they're preaching the message that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that he resurrected to new life. There's always a message that is preached in baptism. And it's a beautiful picture. But it's not the water that saves them. It's not the water that cleanses us. Peter says it's the resurrection of Christ from the dead that saves us. 
Have you experienced that? New life. And again, all along here, Peter is, is, is encouraging and reminding these persecuted Christians that, that there is hope. There is hope. Look, Noah was persecuted. Noah was, um, was made fun of. And yet, Noah was victorious. Christ was persecuted. Christ died on the cross. And yet, Christ was victorious. And he reminds them in verse 22 that, that they serve and are a risen Lord. That he ascended into heaven. Verse 22 says that who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. And to be at the right hand of God means that you are at the highest point in all of the universe. And it says that, that he was with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, so everything in the universe was at the submission of Christ. Church, we, we, we serve a risen Lord that is over all. And Christ is now in heaven because his work of redemption on earth is complete. And by his death and resurrection, he has subjected all the spirits uh, to his sovereign power. And that word submission that Peter uses here means that, that the devil had to line up under Jesus and take orders from him. And though he fights against Christ, he knows that he can never, ever win. The battle has been won. The war is over. Jesus is the victor. He is the victor, and he is the one that we serve. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and the demons and the devil himself must bow down to him. The one that died on the cross now rules the universe. And this one that died on the cross and rules the universe, the Bible says, he is my friend. He cares about me. He loves me. The one who made the sun and the moon and the stars and created this incredible universe, he is the triumphant Christ. He is my Savior and he loves me. And Peter is reminding the church, church, those of you that are suffering, you're serving a risen Lord. You're serving one that is in control of all. He's even in control of your situation, as terrible as it might be, as hard as it might be. He is in control, and you will be victorious just like he was victorious. We serve a risen king and that is something that we should celebrate that's something that should should humble us that's something we should meditate on and recognize on a daily basis that we serve a risen king that loves us and cares us and desires relationship with us do you know him do you really know him not do you know about him do you know him? Because as the church, as we face suffering, 
as brothers and sisters around the world face suffering, the only thing that keeps us strong is knowing our Savior, knowing the one that suffered, knowing the one that died, and knowing that he was and is victorious. But we must know him. And as I have thought about what this church must have been going through, when they received this letter and how encouraging it must have been, I wonder, am I really willing to suffer? Am I really willing to sacrifice anything for my faith? Or do I do everything I can to keep myself from experiencing suffering? I I, I don't talk about my faith because I might get made fun of. I don't do certain things because I might have to suffer just a little bit. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what suffering is here. But as we know Jesus, our Savior, the one who suffered for us, it changes our whole perspective. And we will want to do whatever he invites us to do for his glory. So do you know him? When was the last time that you ran to the cross to be in his presence? Have you ever run to the cross of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And as I close this morning, I want you to to, to reflect on where you're at spiritually, on where you're at in your walk with Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never, you, you've never made that commitment. Maybe you've come to church your whole life. You grew up in the church. Um, you know, you've been going to Sunday school. You go to youth group. You've gone to ABF. But you, you've never, you know about him, but you don't know him. You can know him. You can know the one who died preached to the spirits, was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Because it is him and him alone that saves. So as we stop, as I'm done, I want to take just a moment for you to reflect on your journey of faith and where you're at. And I want to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, this morning there are those among us that, that know about you but have never made a commitment 
to follow, to serve you, to submit themselves to you, to, to allow you to, to, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. If you've, if you've never confessed Christ, this, here's a prayer that you can pray. And not that prayer saves you. It's Jesus coming and filling you. Dear Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. For too long, I've tried to live without you. I know that, that I'm a sinner and that I've broken all of your laws. But Jesus, I truly believe that you are the Son of God. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. Thank you for paying the penalty of sin. Thank you that you rose from the dead on the third day. Here and now, with all of my heart, I trust you. Is my Savior. Come in. Come into my heart. Save me. This is my prayer. Father, I pray that, um, Lord, that we would recognize the beauty of the cross and that when we survey that wondrous cross, As we sang that song that the cross bids me to come and die. Father, may that be the reality this morning among us. That we would experience a love that is so amazing and so divine. And as we recognize that, that we would give all of ourselves to you. Father, move in us and change us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.